Would you pray with me? Let's go to God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that all of what we've been singing about this morning is true. That you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. That you, you have loved us with a steadfast love that we did not deserve. And you have sent your son to be our salvation. Thank you, Jesus, that you bled and died and rose again to save us from our sins. And thank you for the joy and the hope and the life that we have now because of you. We pray as we open up the scriptures this morning that we would hear God's voice speaking directly to each of our hearts in all of the circumstances of life that we're faced with, that your word would be would have its powerful effect upon us that you determine it to have. We pray that we'd be changed by it, strengthened by it, and our faith would grow as we behold our God together. Amen. Amen. Have you ever experienced, had something happen to you that was so incredible and so almost on the point of being unbelievable that when you tried to tell someone about it, they said, oh, I don't believe you unless you've got pictures to prove it. So, for instance, I would love to be able to tell you a story about how I wrestled a bank robber uh, and stopped him from stealing 3,000 pounds from a friend of mine. That is a true story. But you would probably say, well, no pics, it didn't happen, you know. And, and that's true, isn't it? We, we hear unbelievable stories and we wonder, did it really happen? Did the things that you're claiming to happen actually happen if you can't prove it, if there's no pictures or witnesses? Now, uh, I was searching around online this week, and there's a website called boardpanda.com, and they uh, have this same uh, kind of idea going on, and they're asking people to send in their unbelievable stories that are supported by uh, camera pictures that, uh, that show that what, they, uh, what these people actually experience actually happened to them. So there's, there's all sorts of stories. There's, at the moment, there's 122 unbelievable moments that are supported by the claims of photos, pictures. There's a man who was attacked by a tiger and escaped. There's Johnny Depp playing guitar in a wedding band in 1982. There's uh, someone being attacked by a seagull while on the toilet. And they had, the, they had the, the, the ability to get out their phone and take a picture of it, which is quite remarkable. There's people meeting famous people and and being up close and personal with the most unusual kind of wildlife. And then my particular favorite, there's a man who was walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding when his trousers fell down. Uh, and so you can go online. Uh, and you see, you, you, some of these stories you would think, well, I don't believe them unless there was a picture. And people are sending in their pictures. Because sometimes, no matter how intriguing or interesting or hilarious a story is, sometimes they just seem a little bit too far-fetched, don't they? That they're on the, on the brink of being fairy tales or fantasy or folklore unless we get some pictures to help us believe. Now, we've been working our way through Isaiah 40. We started last week. And verses 1 to 11 of Isaiah, he's speaking in about 740 BC, so nearly 3,000 years ago. And Isaiah is bringing a message to God's people at the time when there was plenty of stuff that was happening around them that was causing them to be discouraged and to despair. 
Uh, and Isaiah actually says, well, this isn't just the worst of it. There's more that's still to come because a future generation is going to experience humiliation and despair and deportation as they're defeated by the Babylonians who are going to conquer them and take them into exile. So in the midst of all that's going on in the world, Isaiah comes and he gives them a message of comfort. That despite all of the trials of life and despite all of the ways that things could get worse, God was going to send a mighty deliverer to execute a great salvation for his people. That he was going to free them from bondage in Babylon. He was going to set them free and forgive their sins. And actually, in the first 11 verses of Isaiah, we have the gospel in kind of like in acorn form. It's all there, but it's going to grow into the mighty oak tree of Jesus Christ that we see in the New Testament. But it's all in there. Now, these original people that Isaiah was speaking to were people who were steeped in attitudes of compromise and uh, idolatry and fear and unbelief. They were doubting God and his commands. They were doubting God and his promises. They were people who were despondent because of what was happening to them. They were people who were suffering depression because of what was happening to them. They were people who were despairing because of what was happening to them. They were people who lost their sense of assurance as God's people because of what they were experiencing. The trials and the situations that they found themselves in. And so Isaiah brings this message of comfort, but then almost, if you kind of read between the lines, between 11 Verse 11 and verse 12, it's almost like he anticipates some of the questions that are going through their heads. Some of the things that we might say if we had been the recipients of that message of comfort. Mm, Yeah, that all sounds a bit too good to be true. Where's the pictures to back it up? That sounds unbelievable. You're going to send someone to deliver us and forgive our sins? Where's the pictures? Well, gloriously, the rest of the chapter provides the pictures, a picture of who God is. So that when someone says, can we really trust God? Can God really deliver us from the Babylonians? Can he really overcome and forgive sins? Can he really protect and save his people from all the opposition that they might face? Isaiah says, yes, here's the pictures to prove it. And that's what we're going to see in verse 12. From verse 12 onwards, he paints these breathtaking pictures of what God is like so that we might trust him, so that we might see him for who he is, so that we might receive the comfort of the message. And you and I, though separated by nearly 3,000 years from these original readers, are just like them, if we're honest with ourselves. Human nature hasn't really changed over 3,000 years. We're still people who hear the good news of the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we go, yes, but, oh, life is hard. Things are happening to me that make me question it. We live in a fallen world with all of the difficulties and the challenges and the problems of life that we experience. We experience fears. We experience doubts. We experience insecurities. We experience despair and worry and concerns about life that can make us stagger and stumble into compromise and unbelief and anxiety and fear and despair, despondency, depression. And we need a message of hope, but we also need a picture to prove that the claims are true. 
Isaiah does both. God comes to us in these verses that we're about to read, and he is going to give us a picture of himself. Because you and I are very good at looking at the world through our own eyes, aren't we? We're very good at looking at the world through our own eyes, and we're very good at looking at the situations that we face through our own eyes. But God here is coming and he's saying, here, put these glasses on. See the world and see your problems through God's eyes. And that's what we're going to do. So would you read with me verse 12 to verse 17? Because when we're tempted to look at our lives and when we're tempted to look at the world around us and all of the problems and see the reasons that make us afraid, that make us panic, that make us despair, God simply says, behold your God. Here he is. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? And marked off the heavens with a span. And enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. And who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Who did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the the coastlands or the islands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing And emptiness. To whom then, verse 18, will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? In these verses, we're going to find one overarching truth, really. And that is that God is able to keep every promise of his word because he is unmatched in his greatness. Here's the picture And actually, Isaiah is going to give us four pictures, four pictures to help us understand the greatness, the unmatched greatness and glory of God so that we can be sure that he is able to keep his promises. So let's explore all the ways that God's greatness is on display in these verses and the ways that it's celebrated. Look with me at the beginning of verse 12 where where Isaiah tells us, God holds the waters, all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Now, just look at your hand for a minute, right? Look Look at your hand. And then cup it and think about, right, that is the hollow of my hand right there. Now, how much do you think you could actually hold in the hollow of your hand? You can find out later when you try and get coffee in the hollow of your hand rather than use one of our allegedly biodegradable cups. Here's the perfect reusable cup, the hollow of your hand. Now, how much could you hold in the hollow of your hand? I submit to you, not a lot. Even if you've got the biggest hands on the planet. But Isaiah here tells us that God can hold all of the water in in the world in the hollow of his hand. Now think about that for a moment and think about the amount of water that is on our planet. 71% of the entire surface of the earth is covered in water. And, the average, and 96% of that water is found in the oceans. So the, uh, the Arctic Ocean, Atlantic, Pacific, Indian, and all of the other seven seas and, and all of that. 96% of the water on our planet is found in oceans. 
Some of the average depth of the ocean is about two miles deep, going down in some places to the deepest part where it's over seven miles deep. Okay? Now, here is how much water is on our planet in liters. All right? One sextillion, 396 quintillion, 675 quadrillion, 175 trillion liters of water on earth. Okay? And Isaiah tells us that God could scoop that up in the hollow of his hand, just like you and me scoop up cold water in the morning and splash our faces. All right? It's a picture of the greatness of God. Now, number two, he goes on in verse 12. God measures the heavens by a span. Now, think about this. If you go and stand outside in the countryside, away from the naked human eye, clear and starry night, scientists and astronomers reckon that through the naked human eye, you can see about 2,000 stars at any given time. All right, that's pretty impressive. 2,000 stars. So when Isaiah was reading this, uh, writing this and the people were looking up into the sky, they were going to go, wow, 2,000 stars. Whoosh, wow, that's incredible. Now we look on and we say, but we've got the Hubble telescope. So we have even more information about the stars in our universe. Okay, so uh, let's think about this. 50 years ago, uh, we put the first man on the moon. Okay, that, that is the nearest kind of heavenly body to us, the moon. It's the closest thing to us. It's a quarter of a million miles away, and it took spacemen three days to get to the moon. Now, if you were traveling at the same speed it took them to get from Earth to the moon, uh, and you tried to visit the nearest star other than the sun, which is obviously a star, which is called Alpha Centauri, it's 4.3 million, uh, sorry, 4.3 light years away. Okay, now, because we don't understand what light years are, here's how long it is in proper miles. Okay, 15 trillion, 534 billion, 279 million, 805,933 miles away. That if you went at the same speed it took man to get to the moon, it would take you 114,000 years to get there. All right, so nobody's going to be visiting anytime soon. And that is the nearest star in our neighborhood. Okay, now the astronomers will tell you that the universe, the known universe, because they're still not quite sure how big it is, the known universe is 46 billion light years across. So let's put it in a bit of perspective. The Earth is the third rock from the sun in a solar system which is in the Milky Way, and the Milky Way is one of about 200 billion galaxies in the known universe that spreads from one side to the other, which is 46 billion light years apart, okay? And it would take 15 billion or something, uh, sorry, 15 trillion years just to get to the nearest star, but it's 46 billion light years wide, and God goes, yeah, it's about that big. The span of a hand. Yeah, it's about that big. What, what else? I mean, we measure horses by hands. What else is measured? And God goes, yeah, it's just that big. So he scoops up all the water. That's pretty impressive. And then he goes, oh, actually, the universe. Yeah, about, mm, yeah, about that big. Incredible. Thank you very much. <coughs> Someone's appreciating it, even if you're not. Uh, thirdly, third picture that God gives us, that Isaiah gives us, he measures the dust of earth in a measuring cup, 
and he weighs all of the mountains on balances, on scales. So I wish I had a measuring cup with you, but uh, with me. But God, it tells us, he scoops up all the dust of the earth. So everything that is land, he scoops up in a cup and he says it fits inside a measuring cup. And then he says, and then he takes the mountains and he weighs them on scales. So the Alps, the Andes, the Rockies, the Himalayas, there are over one million mountains on the earth. Did you know that? I looked that up this week. One million mountains on the earth. 109 mountains on the planet are over four miles high above sea level. Okay, and obviously Everest is the greatest mountain. It's five and a half miles above sea level and it's uh, at the top. Okay. And scientists reckon that Mount Everest, if you were to weigh it on the scales, okay, would be 178,500,000,000 tons. Just one mountain. And here, Isaiah tells us God can scoop up all the mountains in a measuring cup and all of the land and all of the coastlands and all of the islands and everything that's not water and measure it on the scales like we measure pick and mix sweets. Or like we measure ingredients for baking cakes. That's how great our God is. But he ain't finished there. The fourth thing in verse 15, it goes on and he, reckon, he tells us how the nations compare to our God. So right now on our planet, 195 different countries. Okay, 7.7 billion people live at this moment, alive today. Okay, now again, scientists reckon that Every human being that's ever lived, and this depends on uh, uh, you know, whether you believe in how old the earth is or whatever, but they reckon maybe 108 billion people have ever lived. Okay, 7.7 billion people alive on the planet today. The combined power, uh, economic power, the GDP that is produced every year by all the nations of the earth is $70 trillion. Okay, there's 14,000 active nuclear warheads, and more than 20 million uh, active military personnel worldwide, okay? That's the glory, if you like, and the power of the nations. Economic power, military power, uh, population density, and God lines us up, and he goes, like a drop in a bucket. Look at it, verse 15. The nations are like a drop in a bucket. Who, when they're watering their garden... And you, you like trip over and you spill a drop from your bucket. It goes, oh, I'm going to have to go back and refill this now. You say, oh, there's still plenty of water. You don't worry about a drop. And that's what God is saying. They're like a drop in the bucket. Who here, when they're weighing their fruit and veg at Sainsbury's, goes to ask to see the manager to supply them with a rag and some polish so that they can just make sure there's no dust on the scales? Now, you might if you were pick and mixing at the cinema because it's so expensive. But, you know, nobody does that, do they? No, no right-minded person. Some insane people might do this. But nobody goes to Sainsbury's with a rag and a bottle of polish and wants to polish the scales from the dust because they don't want to be overcharged on the bananas. That's how God views the nations. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's not that he thinks that the nations are worthless. Read on. Look, it says this in verse uh, 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Now, that doesn't mean all people are worthless in God's sight. No, no, no. That goes against what the Bible tells us, that we are made in the image of God and valuable to him. But what it does, seen is, what it does mean is this. When, he, when we compare ourselves to him, 
it's almost as if we didn't exist. So great is our God. So great is our God. And then he gives us a a little illustration just to reinforce the greatness of God and the weakness and fragility of humanity. He says, take Lebanon, a nation, a great nation at the time that Isaiah was writing. And Lebanon was known for its great forests of cedar trees. And kings from all around the known world would order their wood from Lebanon. They would want the cedar trees of Lebanon to build their palaces. Such was the renown and the glory of the forests of Lebanon. But here in verse 16, Isaiah tells us, if you cut down every single tree, all of those much sought after, longed after cedars, if you cut every, every single one of those trees down in Lebanon, and you started a fire with it. And then you went and you rounded up all of the animals in Lebanon to offer as a sacrifice to God. It would never be enough. It wouldn't be worthy enough of a sacrifice to honor the glory of God. So great is our God. He scoops the waters in the hollow of his hand. He measures the universe with a span. He weighs the mountains in a measuring cup. The nations are as as if they didn't exist in comparison to him. And Isaiah's point is clear. The gap between creator and created things is infinite. There's an infinite gap. It's not just like we are in the same category, but we're at the bottom end of the table and God is at the top end of the table, you know, challenging for the championship. No, he's in a completely different category. A little bit like, you know, if you like tennis, you know, some people tell you that Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player that ever lived. He's won 20 grand slams. He's won hundreds of millions of pounds in trophies, you know, winnings and sponsorship and whatnot. He's been uh, world number one for 310 consecutive, uh, not consecutive weeks, but 310 weeks in his career. And he is the greatest tennis player of all time. But you know what? Rafael Nadal at number two has won 19 grand slams and about the same amount of money and has been. And so you think, well, I thought he was the greatest. He was in a league of his own. Well, no. Rafael Nadal is 19 and then Djokovic has won 16. And, you know, they all have the same amount of money and they can all beat one another. And then Andy Murray, who we think is great, is right down here with his three or something. No, no, no. God is not Rafael like Roger Federer and then, oh, you know, there's, there's a list of people who compare. No, he's in a league of his own. Isaiah wants to see and for us to grasp the vast power and the immeasurable glory and the supremeness of our God that he dwarfs everything and anything else in the universe, in the created order, and all of the collective wisdom and power of mankind. Nothing compares to our God. Nothing compares to our God. We're meant to, to read this and go, wow. He is great in a way that I just can't understand. Now, so what? Is this just a big divine PR stunt? Isaiah is speaking to people like you and me, speaking to people like you and me, inviting us to see God and 
our world through his eyes. God comes to us in these, in these pictures, scooping up the water, weighing the scales, uh, weighing mountains on the scales. All the nations measuring the universe with a span. He comes to us and he reveals his majesty and his might so that we might speak out a question that, or, or a question might go through our minds then. How could I worry when a God like this is on my side? How can I question when a God like this is my God. Isaiah wants us to see, don't you think God deserves a little bit more credit than we give him? Don't you think God deserves our absolute trust and confidence when we see who he really is? You see, the original audience were threatened because Assyria was on their northern borders and Babylon was in the distance on the horizon coming to conquer them. And those were truly frightening from a human perspective. It is not nice. But Isaiah comes and he says, listen, these are nothing. They're less than nothing. These great superpowers of the world, they don't stand a chance against your God. Does God have the power? They're really good timing over there, aren't they? Does, does, does God have the power to do what he promises? And Isaiah says, yes, 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 absolutely. If he can scoop up the waters of the world in his hands, he can help you out and dry your tears. If he can measure the universe with the span of his hand, you can be sure that he is, he's leading and guiding the path of your life. If he can weigh all of the mountains on the scales, even down to the finest dust of the earth, you could be sure that there's no small, insignificant part of your life that he is not concerned about. It just hammers home the message, point after point. Our God has off-the-charts power. Our God has off-the-charts glory. Our God is greater than any human measure or reckoning. Therefore, he can do all that he says. And he will do all that he says. Here's the pictures to back up the claims. So how does this connect with you and me right now? How does the, the greatness of God connect with little old you and me this morning? Because, because we want to know that, don't we? We want to know, okay, we don't just come for a lecture on the omnipotence of God, which is the theological term for it, the power of God. We want to know, how does this connect to my life right now and what I'm facing and the answer is this, the, the transcendent glory of God is really good news for people who feel trampled and weak and weary. Maybe you walked in this morning and you feel weak, you feel small, you feel weary, you are aware that there are problems in your life. And perhaps you've even reached the point where you're saying to yourself, well, what... I don't know where to go from here. I don't, I, this is like rock bottom. There's no clear way forward. I don't know why this is happening to me. I don't know where God is in all of this. I don't know why this is my lot in life. And usually, people who are trying to be helpful, they come and they tell you 
Here's my suggestion for three things you need to do to change. If you just did this, then that would happen. Perhaps you just need to back away from doing this and you need to try this instead or you just need to go here or you need to read this book or you need to go to this meeting or you need to get this from the doctor. And that's not what God says first. Here's what he says. Behold your God. That's what we need for what ails us. Isaiah doesn't come and say, look inside, look down, look harder. He says, no, look up and look out and behold the greatness of God in all of his majesty and might. So that, so that your worst fears the most dangerous threats you face, the the biggest enemies that are knocking at your door, the the struggles, the anxieties, the trials, the situations, the sins might fall into just the right perspective and that we might see that we actually have a God who is able to help us. Look at the nations, look at the world. No, look at your God. He is sufficient to help us. He is powerful to help us. He is willing to help us. See, our problem is not that God is inadequate to help us in our time of need. It's that we forget what he's like. We forget what he can do. We forget what he has done. You see, Isaiah comes to people like you and me and he wants us to see God through God's eyes so that we realize that God's word and God's promises are more real and more weighty and more solid than anything else in all of the universe. If he can scoop the water, measure the heavens, weigh the scales, uh, weigh the mountains on scales and he the nations are like nothing compared to him, then he is able to help us. And he's willing to help us. Here is a God with all power. Here is a God beyond all measure. And here is a God who says, I am coming to you. This is verse 10 and 11. I'm coming to you with might like a shepherd. And everyone who's weak And everyone who's frail and everyone who's got injuries and everyone who's broken and everyone who's like grass. Going back to verse 6 and 8. The good shepherd will come and he'll scoop them up in his arms. And he'll carry them and he'll lead them to green pastures beside still waters. Just let the reality of that just sink in for a minute. You arrived this morning in weakness, despondency, despair, doubts, depression, lack of assurance, whatever it might be. The good shepherd comes and he says, come to me, all who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Isaiah says we can trust him as well because 
of the pictures. He will not fail us. You know, if, if this doesn't put a spring in your step and a sparkle in your eyes, then you're worshipping the wrong God, folks. This is meant to steal us, strengthen us, comfort us. How does Isaiah begin in verse 1? Comfort, comfort my people. Keeps on saying your God. If we start to grasp the magnitude and the unmatched majesty of who God is, it will change our lives. Why should we be worried about stuff when this one's got our back? If he can so easily and so competently manage the entire universe with, by doing this, like measuring this, surely he can help us. There's a scene in The Lion King, I don't know whether you've seen it, uh, in the cartoon version uh, and in the, um, the most recent uh, computer-generated one. But there's a scene in the, in the Lion King and Simba and his little uh, friend Nala, they're, they're lion cubs and they go off to try and find the elephant graveyard that their evil Uncle Scar has told them about. And so Simba and Nala, they go off on their own. They're just little lion cubs and they end up in this humongous kind of like gorge on either side and it's a trap that Scar has led them into and the hyenas, a pack of hyenas are there and they're ready to eat and devour Simba and Nala for dinner. And so they, the, there's a scene in the cartoon, and they chase around and around as the hyenas chase them up and down rocks and around and around this great canyon and this cavern. And eventually they back Simba and Nala into a corner. And the hyenas are all surrounding, ready to pounce. And so Simba begins to do what he thinks he should do, which is to roar to try and scare the hyenas off. But it sounds more like a cat. So he goes, and the hyenas just laugh, which is what, obviously what hyenas do. They laugh at him and they tease him and they say, oh, roar again, we're so scared. And they tease him a bit more and they, they torture him almost with the threats of what's going to happen to him. We're going to eat you up, we're going to clean our teeth with your bones, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And then he roars. He tries to roar one more time. And all of a sudden, there is this almighty roar. And the hyenas like panic. And Simba goes, Ooh, where did that come from? And then you see the camera pans and turns, and you see that stood behind this little cub Simba is Mustafa. Is that his name? Mufasa. Sorry. Mustafa. I don't know. It's ruined the story now. I have to start again. And right behind him is Mufasa. Thank you. <laughs> and the hyenas flee because stood behind the little vulnerable cub is the king. And that's exactly what Isaiah is trying to communicate here. <coughs> the Assyrians, the Babylonians, your anxieties, your fears, your worries, they're like hyenas. They're preying on you. They're real. Nobody's denying their power. They are dangerous but don't forget who's behind you. Don't forget who's got your back. None can thwart his good plans and purposes for you. He will deliver you so completely and so fully that you can trust him now. This is a death blow to DIY salvation. This is a death blow to self-sufficiency. This should drive us to our knees in repentance and faith.
as Nick read from 1 Peter 5, humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Here's the mighty hand scooping up the water, measuring the stars, weighing the mountains. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, human beings can survive almost, almost any kind of deprivation and difficulties and grief. We see that, you know, on the TV when, when it's comic relief or, or, or they're trying to raise money for charity. They, they, they produce these videos that really just, they do, they pull on your heartstrings as the deprivation and the difficulties of humans are seen. We can survive, but God here comes and he says, oh, well, we, they, they survive because there's hope. That's the, that's the important bit that I missed. They, they survive because there's a glimmer of hope. Maybe someone will feed them. Maybe they'll be able to get a job. Maybe they'll be able to get educated. Maybe they'll be get out of the slum that they're in. There's a glimmer of hope, and so they, they stick at it, and they work at it, and they try, and they try. And when there's hope, there's hope. Well, for God's people, we're sometimes pessimistic, sometimes optimistic. We're, you know, there are times where we're discouraged, sometimes we're encouraged. Sometimes we're sad and we're scared. But always, for God's people, there's hope. There's always hope. And we've got to fight our fears with faith. It's the first step. That's what Isaiah is getting at. Fight your fears with faith. Behold your God. It's now, there may be other things that you have to do. There may be sins you've got to put to death. There may be things that you've got to put on. But first and foremost, God says, behold me. I'll help you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then in Hebrews, God says, approach my throne of grace and find mercy and help in times of need. There is a God. He is great. He sees. He knows. He hears us. He's with us. He loves us. He will get you to the finish line. The greatness of God is good news for weary people. Now, Isaiah was speaking 3,000 years ago with with a message of hope. And this is a message of hope. But fast forward 3,000 years and we this morning have even more reason to be hopeful. Because the promises that Isaiah speaks about, that God makes in Isaiah 40 in this acorn shell, have already grown into the oak tree of Jesus Christ. So that we don't look forward in hope to the promises. We look back to the surety of the concreteness of what God has already done in Jesus. See, what Isaiah spoke of to comfort the people as coming, we can look back on and say, it has already been done. So even more security and assurance is ours because Jesus has come in the flesh. This mighty warrior and good shepherd has arrived and he lived and he died and he rose again and he did all of that to free us from the bondage, not to Babylon or to Assyria, but to sin and death and hell. And he's given us the forgiveness of sins and he comes in power through the Holy Spirit to help us every day. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the comforter in the New Testament. Comfort, comfort, my people keeps on saying you're God, boom, Holy Spirit. What's he called? Comforter. He keeps on comforting. He keeps on saying, 
He's the great high priest who is ever interceding for us. He invites us, as I've already said, to come and find mercy and grace to help us in time of need at his throne of grace. As we behold our God, not just the greatness of who he is, but what he's done in Christ. We should have hearts that are full this morning. For in Jesus Christ, as we behold him, we see the ultimate expression of God's greatness and character and nature. In Jesus, we see the supreme rule and authority over all things. We see his limitless power over sickness and sin and death and demons. We see him uh, in all of his brilliant righteousness and holiness and glory. We see him in boundless grace that covers boundless sins. We see him in unchanging faithfulness and tender compassion. And in Jesus, we receive the ultimate assurance of deliverance. You see, the gospel is powerful because it is instigated and initiated and brought about and guaranteed by the God of Isaiah 40. So it's our confidence and our hope and the thing that we trust in because this God has got our backs. And he's not just going to do, it's not just promises into the future on the never, never. No, he's already done it. And here's the hope that we have. This is how Paul Describes it very familiar, and I'll finish here with Romans chapter 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he has predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all of these things that go on around us and that go on inside of us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God who can scoop up all the water of the world in the hollow of his hand is for us, who can be against us? If God who can measure the universe with the span of his hand is for us, who can be against us? If God who can gather up all of the dust of the earth and weigh it in a measuring cup on some scales is for us, who can be against us? If, all, if our God is greater than all of the 195 nations and 7.7 billion people with all of our supposed economic and military power and we're as nothing in, compar- in comparison to him, then surely who can be against us? But then you add this. And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, together with Christ, graciously give us all things? See, this morning we have great hope, no matter what we face, no matter what is our lot, no matter the difficulties and the circumstances of life. And listen, I know that there's a room full of hurting people. God is great and God is for us. Isaiah tells us to look up and behold him and trust him. Let's pray.